0: is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is 6.02 a.m. Central Standard Time. It's the 1st of December, which means the 1st of the last month of 2020. Is episode 330 of Bitcoin and it's gonna be a normal show with news. I uh, will do the commodities. We'll uh talk about Bitcoin price, uh hash rate, whatnot like that. Uh we'll do Clark Moody's dashboard, then more news. We'll do the we'll do the standard show. Um <clears throat> Uh, Yesterday, uh, for episode 329, I brought you the uh, interview with Constantin Nick. Um, So what we're going to do is we're going to start today's show with a news piece about uh, Zebedee Games. And later on today, uh, I'm going to be interviewing uh, somebody from Zebedee Games, and then I will bring you that interview later on this week, either tomorrow or Thursday or something like that, but today is Tuesday, so it won't be, it it won't be today, today's just going to be my, you know, my normal show, Uh, quite a day yesterday, why? Well, because it was November the 30th, and at, uh, let's see, what was I, uh, Greenwich Mean Time... Uh, minus six hours or plus uh, plus six hours or something like that. I can't remember where I'm at on on the time scale. But at Greenwich Mean Time, uh, at the very end of the day, we closed a monthly candle on Bitcoin that was well an all time high. Now, on some exchanges, we actually registered a daily all time high, um, and that would have have surpassed the uh, twenty. Was it 2017 December 20,000? Um, uh, well, we never really got to 20,000. We got to something like 19,800. I think a couple of exchanges registered 19,900, and a couple of others registered like you know, I don't know, 19,780 or some shit like that. Way back, way back then, and everybody was just loopy about it. Well, that only lasted for 24 hours, if that. I mean, and some people are saying that it lasted maybe 48 hours. But honestly, that the the, the all-time high price that everybody points to, Peter Schiff, um, all the detractors, Francis Coppola. Oh, God, who's that Who's that idiot with the Nobel Prize hanging off of his neck? Oh, oh God, not Raul Powell. Oh, what a, Noriel Rubini, Yeah, that dude. All the detractors, <clears throat> they always point to that and say, well, you're off you know this many percent from your all-time high. Well, really? I mean, is that your basis of technical analysis? Look, I'm not a TA guy, but I've been around, I've been I've been on this boat long enough to know how a fucking sail is unfurled, okay? You don't that that's a ridiculous metric to use at this point. It's it lasted a, it was a blip on the radar. We closed, what did, when did we close? Hold on for a second. Let me me look at something for just a second. I want to see when we closed on the month. Uh, What did we close at on the month? We closed at, let's see, that was way back. Oh, wow. That was way back. Well, I know why, because I'm not on the month. I'm looking at my trading view chart here. And right now we're sitting at like, you know, 19,461. We finished that month. We finished November at, was it? 19,800, let's just, let's just round it up because I can't, I can't really zoom in far enough to, to get a good read on it on the monthly. But if we go all the way back to what was going to be, that was going to be uh, on the first or on, for the month of December, okay? The month ending December, we had a high for the month, okay? For the month of 13,823. That was our high for the month. Now, the, the daily high, if you want to go back and look at that, was some, something around, uh, let me see. Let's see if I can get, get TradingView to work with me. Come on, work with me, TradingView. Come on, work with me. Uh, yeah, 20000 That was the peak, was 20000 And this is going to be bit stamp prices, okay? <clears throat> yeah, that didn't last all that long. In fact, if I, go, if I look at that on the daily, if I can get there, let me see. Hold on. Hold on. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. There we go. I'm going to go over here. I'm going to look at my at the daily on this. And, yeah, I mean, I'm looking at one, two, two candles, say, starting a couple of days before we were at, let's see. Yeah, a couple of days before we were at 16,288. The very next day, we were at sixteen thousand seven hundred fifty-four, somewhere around there. Uh, that next day, which it was December the sixteenth, twenty seventeen, I'm looking at like you know nineteen thousand three hundred seventy-one, and then the very next day, it tip topped out at nineteen thousand, or right at twenty thousand, and then over the next one, two, three, four, five, six days. And it bottomed out on that six day at $11,104. Is this really the metric that anybody that is even remotely competent in technical analysis, is this really what you want to use? As you're you're down this many percent from your all-time high, when that all-time high was somewhere around, I don't know, a couple of days inside of a week of the heaviest volatility anybody's ever seen. I mean, the slope on these candles, if I'm looking at it from one candle to another, the slope is just, I mean, um, not parabolic because I'm looking at a line, but like, you know, way beyond 45 degrees to the upside and then way beyond looking at 45 degrees, you know, to the downside, way beyond both of those that's not this is not the volatility you're looking for if you want to do measurements you need to be doing it like on the week let's see what the week looks like on that the week on that let's see was going to be finished that week at oh good lord where am i at oh i know why because it well trading view is being weird hold on that week finished at like nineteen thousand. okay if you're looking at the granularity at the weekly basis, you're looking at a at an all-time high of nineteen thousand. Where are we at right now? Well, we're at uh, nineteen thousand three hundred and ninety-nine on the week so far, and the week uh, the week you know kind of just began what yesterday because it's yeah yeah. So this is this is the kind of fud that you need to avoid. And the, the Fudsters that are going to bring it to you is like, you know, ha- or have been bringing it to you, Noriel Rabini, Francis Coppola, Peter Schiff, people like that, all right? And expect more to come down the pipe. Lots more, more and more and more. The higher the number goes, the more assholes are going to reveal themselves. And you can't really be shook out of this because if, if you were around in 2017, or, or rather before 2017, And you rode that roller coaster on the way up and you didn't sell like, okay, you know, maybe you sold some, but you didn't just like bail out. Okay. Like completely get in the lifeboat and, and, and get out and just never look back. If you're one of those people that stayed on the boat, congratulations, you deserve this. You deserve to be able to point and laugh. You deserve to be able to say, see, I told you so. You'll be able to do that again. But when you do that again, it's because it's gonna because you go through another storm. We're all gonna go through another storm. So just guys, be aware. All right, FUD is on the way. We've always dealt with it, but we're gonna have even more FUD. So it will be up to uh, startups like Zebedee Games to uh, literally to ignore the FUD, and as they ignore the FUD and build their products, they will help us. Ignore the FUD so that we can just go ahead and build whatever it is that we're going to do. But let's talk about Zebedee Games for a little bit. Uh, BTC Times has this article. It was released on uh, November the 28th by Aria Cromwell. And it says the startup on a mission to make game development, choose uh, developers choose Bitcoin. It's not hard to come to the conclusion that Bitcoin and gaming are a match made in heaven. (laughs) I've said that. Digital money meets digital reality with the native currency of the internet, potentially enabling open virtual economies that transcend single game universes and link to the gigantic monetary cosmos that is the Bitcoin network. And the idea offers a welcome break from the usual narrative surrounding Bitcoin's disruption of legacy financial markets, which, while very much its core value proposition, might leave a large group of people behind. The majority of the world's population may be using fiat currencies, but it's necess- it neces—it isn't necessarily familiar with the inner workings of their monetary policies. Online gaming, on the other hand, <laughs> comes in various shapes and forms and is enjoyed by many. Um, due to where um, something happened, hold on. Uh, enjoyed by many. Yeah, uh, be it mobile games. Uh, Console sagas or massively multiplayer PC titles, an estimated, get this, 2.7 billion people in the world are playing video games in 2020. Fed with a bountiful supply of new titles churned out by a $160 billion global machine. In the gaming industry, Bitcoin seems to have found an opening to reach a new audience. The idea, earn Bitcoin as you play. Get a small amount to familiarize yourself with the currency outside of media-imposed bias and inside a gamified environment with minimal friction. The problem, the Bitcoin blockchain isn't built to scale to the transactional requirements of even a single massively multiplayer game, which rendered the concept of in-game transactions impractical during the first nine years of Bitcoin's existence. Christian Moss who it is that I'm going to be interviewing later on today. Co-founder of gaming infrastructure startup Zebedee faced this exact challenge. Since 2013, Moss has been developing games with a Bitcoin angle, yet always ran into a dead end when it came to scaling the titles up for larger audiences. But come 2018, the beta launch of the Lightning Network introduced massive scalability potential for Bitcoin and opened the door To a plethora of opportunities for Moss, it was clear that Lightning was the missing puzzle piece that would enable game developers to integrate Bitcoin. Together with his co-founders, Simon Cowell and Andre Neves, probably Neves, he set out to make that exact integration easier and support the trailblazers in Bitcoin-enabled game design. Today, Zebedee, that's spelled Z-E-B-E-D-E-E, provide solutions for game developers looking to integrate Bitcoin microtransactions into their games via Lightning. While the exact application can vary at its core, Lightning payments provide the opportunity to replace classic point systems and in-game currencies, which are usually isolated within a game and useless outside of it. Quote, our motivation was to allow developers to tap into the value captured by Bitcoin and for it to enrich both financially and technically, the gaming ecosystem, Moss explains. <laughs> a popular model is that of lightning payouts to players, which provide a small financial incentive to users, play the game and earn money while you're at it. Hey, that sounds like a great idea to me. The payouts... Are usually financed by game revenue obtained through ads, sponsorships, in-app purchases. It is cheaper than a paid marketing campaign, and we see and, and we are seeing it increase our retention massively, detailed Moss. As an infrastructure provider, Zebedee works with game developers to blend lightning integrations into their game structures. The startup's target group, according to Moss, are indie studios and small developers that are looking at ways to stand out and offer something different when compared to larger publishers. While Zebedee's suite is still in closed beta, a number of projects brought to life with it looks like looks uh, sorry, brought to life with its tools can already be publicly tested. Bitcoin Rally, a Mario Kart inspired racing game involves players collecting sats on the racing track to boost their vehicles as they compete for a grand Bitcoin prize. The game additionally allows viewers to support the racers by donating extra sats as power-ups. I'm in love with this idea, by the way. But is a transferable in-game currency actually desirable? A game economy design that allows players to move in-game currencies out of the game and sell it on a secondary market is everything but traditional and deviates from common game economy design practices. Game currencies are often used by game designers to ensure user retention. In the case of mobile games, in-game currencies may be sold in batches to increase revenue and ensure users return to the value they locked into their account. Uh, Massively multiplayer online titles, otherwise known as MMOs, may develop massive economies fueled by their in-game currencies. In both cases, it is usually not permitted or even possible to transfer in-game currencies outside of their respective game. And save for a small number of top-grossing online games, in-game currencies have little to no value outside of the game itself. In-game currencies, however, have escapist characteristics as they disconnect the player from the value of real-world money they use to purchase an in-game currency. What could 10 diamonds or a bar of gold, game gold, that is, buy you in real life? You don't remember and you don't care. You're too busy enjoying the game. That's the psychological effect of virtual money. Bitcoin, however, comes at a real value, more so even than fiat currencies. Over the last decade, Bitcoin has taken the spotlight from traditional stores of value, such as gold, continuously outperforming established asset classes. Today, owning Bitcoin means hedging against inflation, shitload more than that, y'all. And that makes Bitcoin an asset that is often held but seldom spent. Quote, I'm less interested in just replacing purchases in-game with Bitcoin, Moss notes, but he has observed an interesting behavior among gamers when it comes to the de- denomination of their coins. Quote, when users are thinking in sats, they seem more willing to spend. <clears throat> Psychologically, their savings are stored in Bitcoin in another wallet, but their sats are kind of like their fun money in <laughs> quote one sat is currently valued at $0. 0.00017 dollars a negligible amount of <laughs> amount that significantly lowers the psychological barrier to spend some on in game items when it comes to earning sats as you play on the other hand the real world value attached to satoshis plays into the cards of game publishers even if the amounts earned are mostly minuscule for now On a longer time horizon, Moss believes Lightning can become a viable option for game economy designers of all calibers. While small titles such as casual mobile games likely have more flexibility to experiment, he anticipates large studios to wait and see while letting things play out for the first movers. A lot of AAA studios have incubators and or own smaller indie studios specifically to experiment with new ideas that are too risky and, and new to add to their larger titles. AAA games are top-quality games developed by large studios, usually backed by massive development and marketing budget. Adoption of Bitcoin payments, be it to pay out rewards, allow users to buy a separate in-game currency or replace any in-game currency altogether we will start with uh, smaller games and slowly move up the food chain to larger titles, Moss says. Notably, Zebedee is already experimenting with adding Lightning to existing AAA PC titles that are moddable, which means modifiable, and they allow users to make alterations to the game, for example, through content additions like gameplay cheats. Mods that introduce Lightning to successful games would be kind of like icing on the cake through the addition of new financial incentives, Moss believes. Ultimately, an in-game currency doesn't make up a game's entire value proposition, and as such, in-game Lightning Payments needs to, be, needs to be a means to an end for a game that is worth playing on its own, rather than present a game's major selling point. In order to appeal to large audiences, games with integrated Lightning payments also need to consider the user-friendliness of their users' Lightning wallets, a quest that cannot be taken lightly. No shit. However, Moss, who is drawn to game development in part because of its open environment that allows developers to run free with gameplay ideas, is convinced Lightning can create new opportunities for creative design choices. In the long term, he says he wants to see Zebedee enabling and furthering these opportunities for economic innovation within games. Okay, so thank you, Aria, for that (laughs) enlightening article. That's actually going to help me with my uh, interview with Christian Moss later today. But, you know, what I am taking away from this is, you know, generally speaking, like, let's take the um, Unreal Engine. When the Unreal Engine first came out, Okay, And I can't remember exactly when the first in- instance of Unreal Engine. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's the general gaming engine uh, that AAA studios all over the world use as the base to build their games. It contains all the code. It contains all the mechanics. It like it, it's it is the game studios <clears throat> interface into building their their game, okay? So there's that platform is all about game mechanics, collision, art. Lighting, rendering, speed that it's going to play on your computer, all the code. The, I mean, everything, except for one thing. It doesn't, it doesn't provide a platform for building payments without you know, building an economy from the ground up. Right? So generally speaking, a AAA game studio will buy seat licenses to Unreal to build their platforms. Zebedee is the first company that I've seen that isn't really worried about building their own game engine. They're building an economy engine, right? So now, game studios that are AAA can reach out to not only Unreal and say, "Hey, we want to buy you know, I don't know, 50 seat licenses <clears throat> for this, you know, for the next five years or whatever, so that we can build our game." And then they, the second call they make is uh, going to be to, "How are we going to handle the in-game economy?" It's like, well, you call Zebedee. just like they call Unreal Engine to take care of you know, getting their game built visually and, and being able to you know, splay it out to uh, different platforms, then they're going to pick up the phone. They're going to call Christian Moss and say, we need an economy engine. And Christian Moss is going to say, sure, I've got a platform for you to build economy engines on, or we've got an economy engine that you can use, leverage to build your in-game uh, economy on. This, I'm looking at Zebedee like I look at Unreal. When Unreal first came out, they had a like a package game along with it, and it was you know you could pick it up for free, and it was I don't know mining on you know it was like a mining game or something like that. And 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 well, it wasn't a mining game. It was that was the quote unquote setting for the story, but there wasn't much of a story. It was basically just bouncing around, shooting each other to death, and you could put you know uh, bots in the game so that you could like if you weren't able to play with somebody online, you could have like Five or ten AI-driven bots running around trying to kill you, and that game was fun. I mean, it's slick, dude. Now I played that thing for hours. It was it was a blast, but it was just to demonstrate the Unreal Engine. The whole purpose of that game was to demonstrate Unreal. So Zebedee has their own games, like this uh, Bitcoin Rally, which I've seen I've seen played, and it's it's slick looking, man. It's got good motion. It's not, I mean, it's nothing to sneeze at in its own right. And what it's demonstrating is not only, you know, they have their, they're leveraging somebody else's game engine, but they're the ones that are creating this, this economy engine. So be aware video games are going to change. Okay. It's not that every video game that you'll ever see will have an in game economy. It's just that for the first time, it's really opened up that economy connections into a game and out of a game, in between games, in between markets, from game to market, from market to games, has been, is undergoing a standardization. And once that standard really gets set in stone, watch out, because games are going to get, going to be a lot of fun. Oh, we're, we're seeing a lot. I just looked back and we're seeing a lot of liquidated longs. Let's see. Well, we'll we'll get to that later. (laughs) This is... Sorry. Um, let's see. South Korea will delay 20% crypto trading tax to 2022. This is Liam Frost writing for uh, Decrypt and says the strategy and finance committee of the South Korean national assembly has approved new amendments to the tax law, delaying the introduction of the income tax on cryptocurrency trading until January of 2022 local outlet Yonhap Hap news agency reported. The tax was initially scheduled to come into effect on October the 1st, 2021, but the committee argued last week that local crypto exchanges needed more time to build infrastructure that are fully compliant with the new rules. Thus, the committee suggested postponing the changes. During a general meeting on November the 30th, the lawmakers officially approved the delay. Starting from January 2022, income from cryptocurrency trading will incur a 20% tax, but only if a trader's profits would exceed 2.5 million Korean won, or around $2,000, in one year, all crypto trading-related income over that threshold will be taxed on a yearly basis. Currently, South Korean crypto exchanges are also obliged to compete, or sorry, to complete Know Your Customer procedures for their clients by September of 2021, as part of the implementation of the law on special payments. The amendments also include a ban on anonymous cryptocurrencies. Poor Monero. As Decrypt reported previously, South Korea's Ministry of Strategy and Finance proposed a tax on profits made via crypto to fiat transactions in mid-May. This proposal also includes tokens sold by crypto mining organizations through initial coin offerings or ICOs, or also spelled S-C-A-M-S, just so you know. Crypto taxation has become an increasingly hot topic lately as digital assets are getting more traction among the general public. Just recently, an expert witness testified in front of a U.S. congressional panel calling crypto-related taxes a nightmare due to their complex complex nature. Yeah, they are a nightmare. But you know what I wonder about? And and I didn't mean to pick on Monero there. I mean, it's a shit coin, but it's one of the oldest shit coins, so there's a you know a little bit of venerability there. Uh what I'm saying, though, is that Privacy is coming to Bitcoin with Taproot and all the infrastructure that's gonna come around it. And I don't know why people keep bitching and moaning about, oh, it's not private. It's not private. You thought it was private, but it wasn't private. It was never meant to be private. It was always it was it's a public freaking ledger, dude. What do you think's gonna happen? It's not gonna be up to the to the base protocol to be able to keep privacy. It's going to be up to all the protocols that are built on top of that that's going to keep privacy. However, what happens if it becomes too private? What happens if I'm, I'm using mechanisms to trade on exchanges, which I don't do? And I also don't recommend that anybody else does, but hey, to each his own, right? Uh, let's say I'm using mechanisms that make Bitcoin so private that I end up falling under a rule that says, well, you can't trade on my exchange. Well, all of a sudden, I'm not using actual real money to trade. What does that mean? It means that I'm I'm out of the currency markets. You can trade the dollar. You can make bets on the dollar against the euro right now. What's that worth? Why are you trading fiat versus fiat? Well, I guess the only reason is, is that you're looking at some countries' fiat currency as a reflection of their economy as a whole. I don't... Honestly, that has, doesn't really look like it's been all that healthy right now. Um, I, so, I, maybe it would be healthy if I wasn't able to trade BTC for some other freaking shit coin. I don't, don't want to trade my, my Bitcoin for you know any crap. I want to use it for money. And maybe you know I I see I get I guarantee you the fud's going to come down the pipe that says look you're not going to be able to trade your BTC anymore it's over yeah that means that it's going to be a really hard money I can't if I can't trade Bitcoin on an exchange oh my God I can only use it to oh I don't know trade goods and services for uh, make money you know like if I've got a business and I'm accepting Bitcoin only. That's how I get my Bitcoin and then I use, I mean, honestly, that makes Bitcoin kind of hard. I mean, it's already the hardest money I've ever seen. What it, what happens if it's like banned from all the exchanges because we're, you know, people are using it too privately? I don't know, man. I'm just saying, I, it'd be something to watch out for. But authorities do shut off electricity to Bitcoin miners in China's Yunnan province. Ack <gasps> oh, the horror! Oh my God, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. The FUD, the FUD, the FUD. And it may be true, but who gives a shit? Well, I guess Samuel Haig kinda does. He is writing about it for Cointelegraph sometime yesterday and says, local sources report that authorities from the city of Baoshuan in the Chinese province of Yunnan are escalating efforts to crack down on Bitcoin mining, ordering electricity producers to cease supplying power to the city's miners. On November the 30th, the Chinese crypto reporter Colin Wu tweeted that several miners had informed him of the ban, sharing what appears to be scanned copies of official documents issued to power producers. However, Wu added that the ban was probably informed by localized economic interest and probably is not indicative of a desire to quash crypto mining on the part of Beijing. Quote, there is no need to overestimate the impact of these incidents. The attitude of China local power companies towards crypto mining is often changing. It is more a demand for economic interest than political pressure, end quote. <clears throat> the ban appears to have coincided with a 24-hour drop in global hash rate of roughly 10% from 140 exa per second. To 125 exahashes per second, th- though correlation is far from causation. According to Cambridge University's Bitcoin Electricity Consumption Index, Yunnan was China's fourth largest region by mining hash rate, behind Xinjiang, Sichuan, and Inner Mongolia as of April of 2020. Uh, Yunnan then represented 5.42% of global hash rate, ranking it above all countries except for China, the United States, Russia, and Kazakhstan. In June, Wu reported that Yunnan's government had ordered 64 unauthorized mining operations to shut down, including seven that were still under construction. The government cited tax evasion and security risks, including how the mines were wired to local hydropower stations. During the same month, a local Bitcoin mine caught on fire, resulting in the incineration of thousands of units. The mid-year crackdown also followed a May 29th explosion at a hydropower station in Yunnan that killed six people and injured five. The explosion was believed to have prompted greater enforcement of safety standards concerning hydropower plants in the region. In April, Yunnan state grid also issued a document warning electricity producers against the unauthorized diversion of power to Bitcoin mines. So, there you go. And, uh, China. It's all China's fault. China's going to kill Bitcoin again for the, what, Twelfth time? It's ridiculous. Stop it. Investment giant Alliance Bernstein now says Bitcoin has role in, in investors' portfolios. No. Daniel Palmer, please tell me about it. Writing for Coindesk. In a research note produced for clients, <clears throat> seen by Coindesk, Inigo... Ooh, my name is Inigo Montoya. I'm, you killed my father. Sorry. Inigo Frazier Jenkins... Co head of the portfolio strategy team at Bernstein Research said the firm had previously ruled out Bitcoin as an investment asset back in January of 2018, soon after Bitcoin had hit its all time high, close to 20,000. But <clears throat> post pandemic changes to the policy environment, debt levels, and diversification options for investors mean the asset manager now has to admit Bitcoin does have a role in asset allocation, at least over the long term. Fraser Jenkins, Uh, said that the significant reduction in the volatility of Bitcoin's price makes it more attractive, both as a store of value and a medium of exchange. The pandemic has also seen a rise in Bitcoin's correlation with other major assets. On the other hand, he said Bitcoin is a liquid asset and can be quickly sold off, as happened during the March markets crash. From a narrow empirical point of view, the downward shift in volatility of Bitcoin makes it more desirable, but its increased correlation points the other way, Fraser Jenkins wrote. When it comes to a role in hedging against inflation, quote, the driver of Bitcoin is similar to that as of gold. Per the note, even if the cryptocurrency may not exactly move in a way that would counteract inflation in a given fiat currency, other issues such as the use of cryptocurrency in crime and Bitcoin mining's heavy energy footprint. God, the fud is everywhere. We're cited as concerns around the asset as was increasing regulatory scrutiny. There may be potential issues for Bitcoin in future in the future as well, according to Fraser Jenkins, with the pandemic likely to make governments more powerful and take a bigger role in managing economies. Uh, uh, is there a bigger role they can take? Jeez. If cryptocurrencies become much larger than today, they may become an annoyance to policymakers. Quote, cryptos do have a place in asset allocation for as long as they are legal. (laughs) God, Uh, it hurts to read, y'all. Ultimately, Bernstein Research recommends that Bitcoin can comprise 1.5 to 10% of portfolios depending on the cryptocurrency's monthly returns. Quote, the resulting allocation to Bitcoin is low, but then within this simple optimization framework, the allocation to some other asset classes is zero. So in that context, Bitcoin seems to empirically be potentially significant, Fraser Jenkins wrote. So I've never seen, I mean, this is like Janus, dude, the that god or goddess or whatever that has two faces. Yeah. <sighs> and one face is saying something and the other thing is saying the opposite and it just ends up making me want to, I don't know, man, just, you know, there's FUD coming out one, one of the mouths and then there's optimism coming out of the other. And all that means is that they're trying to satisfy two different markets. On one, they're saying, hey, government, we're with you, we're with you. And then they're looking at their clients saying, we're sorry that you haven't been making as much money as you possibly could. Here, look at Bitcoin, it's pretty rad. I don't know, but honestly, everything is good for Bitcoin. Let's figure out and run the numbers. It's the future. No, it's CNBC's futures and commodities. Why futures? because it's 6:36 a.m. central Day, central standard time. Dude, the markets aren't open yet. Unless you're unless you're Bitcoin, in which case it never ever stops trading. Oil. West Texas Intermediate is down 0.2% $45.25 for that one. Uh Brent North Sea is down 0.02%. It is going to come in at $47.87. Natural gas is up three quarters of a point to almost three bucks for a thousand cubic feet. Oh my god, gold is rallying, y'all. Ooh, it's up a point and a half. And it's gonna come in at $1,806 and 80 cents. Peter Schiff, this my heart goes out to you, pal. Even silver is beating your ass down. 3.86% to the upside. We're looking at an ounce price of silver sterling at $23.50. Platinum is up two. Copper is up one and a third. Uh, let's see, what's what's coffee? Oh, coffee. Coffee futures are down, y'all. Almost half a point. Ooh, that's ugly, ugly. Um, let's see, where's my index? Oh, there they are. Oh, we're saved. Dow futures are up a point. Uh, S&P is up a point. NASDAQ futures up almost a point. And the S&P mini is up a point and a quarter. But we got to get into real money, y'all. $19,428. Holy smokes. And that's my high price for a bitinfocharts.com. My low is going to be, where's my low? I got to have a low. Kraken is listing it at $19,352. That's the low. 325,899 transactions performed in the last 24 hours means that about 13,500 transactions are being done every hour on the hour. 2.25 million BTC have been sent around the horn in that hour, in that 24-hour period. And that means that 93,792 BTC are being sent every hour on the hour on average. The average transaction value is 7 BTC. The median transaction value is, whoa, holy shit, 0. 0.044 BTC, or about 862 bucks US. Block times are high, 10 minutes and 35 seconds. We have 0.85 BTC being taken in fees on a per block basis and 115.9 BTC being taken in fees overall in the last 24 hours. We had a difficulty adjustment, uh, and it looks like the hash rate has indeed, as per the uh, uh, article we were reading earlier, has dropped by 10.68%. We are down to 122 exahashes per second. Oh, poor baby. It doesn't matter, dude, because I remember not... At the beginning of this year, saying something about how 65 exahashes per second was uh, the all time high, something like that. Ah, anyway, Ethereum, Litecoin, Bcash, BSV, Ethereum are still alive, apparently. Litecoin's coming in at, dude, 86 cents 9 or uh, dollars. I'm sorry, $86.96. I mean, even like, again, you may not like the shitcoin Doge, but it is a good metric for stability. It's at 0.0034, so people are actually ditching their bags of Doge to get into like shit like Ethereum, Litecoin, Bcash. I guarantee you they're not selling it for Bitcoin. The the, the People that were stashing Doge saw a price rise, and they're like, oh, maybe I can get into Ethereum 2.0. Why 2.0? Because the first one was so bad, they're having to close it and build a new one from the ground up. So, you know... Yeah, if you want to do that, fine, go ahead. But 39,000 transactions in the last 24 hours puts Doge above Ethereum Classic uh, and uh, Bcash, which only has (laughs) 20,000 transactions of the last 24. Clark, save me from all this bullshit. We have a price, uh, Clark Moody has a price of 18970 So I don't know what he's reading, but damn. We have forty-seven thousand nine hundred and forty-six transactions to clear. That is going to take thirty-three blocks to do that. We have 1.0 one point. We have one thousand and sixty-three BTC in the Lightning Network. That's twenty point two million dollars worth of liquidity spread over seven thousand eight hundred and fifty-seven nodes uh, with thirty-six thousand and seventy-one channels. We have oh God! I think this is an all-time high for Tor. Uh, 51.6 uh, percent Uh, sorry, let's try that again. 51.6 percent of the Lightning Network is now being run over Tor. There are 548.9 BTC in the Tor side of the Lightning Network, and that is being run over 2,666 nodes. One Bitcoin is going to get you 10.5 ounces of gold, and the Bitcoin versus gold market cap is three. Holy crap! We've been at two for a while, but now we're actually—we've taken another percentage of uh, gold's market cap. Oh, oh no! Whatever shall Peter Schiff do? Who yesterday tweeted that Bitcoin wasn't taking any of gold's market capitalization? I—I'm kind of calling bullshit. Uh, That's gonna do it for vials. Welcome to part two of the morning roundup. Guggenheim Fund files to be able to invest up to almost $500 million in Bitcoin through the, God, GBTC. Just buy the freaking thing itself, guys. CoinDesk is writing, or Kevin Reynolds is going to write this for CoinDesk, and says, according to the amendment, oh, I'm sorry, let's get into this. Uh, There's a paragraph I, I didn't see. Guggenheim Fund Trust files an amendment with the United States Securities and Exchange Commission to allow its $5 billion macro opportunities fund to gain exposure to Bitcoin by investing up to 10% of the fund's net asset value in the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. According to the amendment, the Guggenheim Macro Opportunities Fund may seek investment exposure to Bitcoin indirectly through investing up to 10% of its net asset value in Grayscale a privately offered instrument vehicle that invests in bitcoin to extend the fund or to the extent that the fund invests in GBTC it will do so through the subsidiary given the fund has net assets of 9 or sorry 4.97 billion dollars according to fidelity it means that the fund can invest up to 497 million dollars in GBTC Grayscale's Bitcoin Trust, a publicly traded financial product that functions similar to an exchange-traded fund, tracks the price of Bitcoin. Guggenheim notes GBTC trades at a significant premium. Then why are you buying it? I mean, is it because you're scared of owning the asset yourself? I mean, are you literally that poor that you can't hire a team of people to handle your freaking private keys? What is wrong with you? What, Dude, if you're going to pay the premium, then figure out what that premium is going to be and then throw it to somebody to work for you as, a, oh, I don't know, an employee that actually knows what the hell they're doing. Or two. I mean, the premium on GBTC is pretty high. And at $497 million? Yeah, bullshit. Dude, no, man, that's that shit's just wrong. But the Macro Opportunities Fund is part of Guggenheim Investments, the Global Asset Management and Investment Advisory Division of Guggenheim Partners and has more than $233 billion in total assets across fixed income, equity, and alternative strategies. Guggenheim is the latest multi-billion dollar hedge fund to signal an interest in Bitcoin. This summer, industry pioneer Paul Tudor Jones' $22 billion BVI global fund could invest a low single-digit percentage of its assets in Bitcoin futures. Earlier this month, hedge fund manager Stanley Druckenmiller said Bitcoin could outperform gold. Grayscale is a sister company to CoinDesk. Remember, I just read you this article from CoinDesk. Well, at least they're doing the right thing there by telling you: uh, Venezuelan army starts mining Bitcoin to make ends meet. Oh God! <laughs> so I guess toilet paper wasn't enough. If you don't understand the reference, uh, never mind. Don't worry. The Venezuelan army turns to crypto mining as the country's uh, economy collapses. The regime of Nicolas Maduro continues to lean on crypto to keep economically solvent via Instagram. An engineering brigade of the Venezuelan army inaugurated the new digital assets production center of the Bolivarian army uh, of Venezuela. As the video shows, the center houses various ASIC mining equipment used to crack proof-of-work algorithms. General Lenin Herrera presented the new mining operation. The stated goal of the mining operation is strengthening and self-sustainability of our units of the Bolivarian Army, adding later that these mining centers would be generating unlockable sources of income and an alternative to the trust system blocked and controlled by colonialist interest, referring to the United States, a country that has leveled sanctions against many associates of the Maduro regime. With oil prices crashing and political turmoil taking its toll even before COVID-19, Venezuela has seen historic inflation in recent months. As Cointelegraph reported in September, Maduro proposed an anti blocks law, a legal body that proposes using cryptocurrencies to evade sanctions and access financing from international allies. These intentions are not new. The Maduro administration has gone so far as to launch and promote its own cryptocurrency, the Petro, which is... Seen limited success. Oh God, if by limited you mean no, then yeah, I guess you're right. On the flip side, the United States military is also closely observing Venezuela's crypto activities. Recently, Admiral Craig Stephen Fowler referred to Maduro's use of crypto and went so far as to link its use to drug trafficking and terrorism, adding that the armed forces were keeping an eye on all such operations. Yeah, there's so there's a little bit more FUD, but I mean... You got now, I mean, now they're like just full-blown military people are starting to get into this shit on behest of their, you know, at the behest of their leaders. So I don't think this is going away anytime soon. Coinbase reports delays in processing Bitcoin withdrawals due to network congestion. You don't say. Really? Coinbase is down? Perish the thought. Whoever would have figured this out, whatever shall we... Okay, Kevin Reynolds writing it for Coindesk.com. Leading cryptocurrency exchange Coinbase on the day when the price of Bitcoin surpassed its all-time high, said it is experiencing delays processing BTC withdrawals due to Bitcoin network congestion. Hmm. Maybe y'all should be using liquid or something. I don't know. Deposits, buys, and sells are not impacted, the exchange said. Coinbase has suffered a number of issues, mainly outages during busy trading periods this year, including most recently November the 26th. Yes, I remember that it was just like, I don't know, what, five days ago? The most recent issue comes as BTC eclipsed its all-time high of $19,783 Monday morning en route to setting a new record to $19,864 before giving back some of those gains, trading at nineteen thousand four hundred seventy eight point eight nine, up 6.9% at press time. So yeah, CoinDesk down again, again, you know, who would have guessed? So let's let's see what decrypts Scott Cipollina has to say about the Bitcoin price as it records the highest monthly close ever. As I was talking about at the beginning of the show, Bitcoin's price has closed closed at its month or highest monthly figure ever, eclipsing the previous high that was seen last month. Uh, Bitcoin's price has been setting records as of late. Yesterday, it rose up and broke its previous all time high price. And it continues to maintain its longest streak ever of days above $10,000. Now it's gone to make gains on the monthly scale, too. Yesterday, Bitcoin's price, having started the month at 13,737, finished the month at 16,625, setting a new record. Bitcoin just made its largest and highest monthly green candle in history, tweeted Blockfolio. This month's figure is far higher than figures seen during Bitcoin's last major bull run during Christmas of 2017, which pushed Bitcoin up to the $19,000 bracket for the first time and registered an all-time high that took nearly three years to overcome. Uh, Per coin market cap, Bitcoin ended 2017 on $14,156 as the Christmas bull run was in full flow. Just one month later, in January 2018, Bitcoin registered a $10,000 or $10,221 number at the end of the month, representing a 28% decrease between months amidst what proved to be a major price price crash. Since the summer, when Bitcoin's 2020 bull run first began, monthly closure figures have been steadily increasing. This August, Bitcoin closed the month at $11,680. One month ago, Bitcoin's pli- uh, price closed in October at 13780 now the second highest monthly close price ever. What's more, this means that there was an 18% increase in monthly closures between August and October. But November has been a historic month for Bitcoin. Not only did this year's bull run reach its highest point this month, but Bitcoin recovered from a brief market crash to register a new all-time high price. Unsurprisingly, this month's closure marks a major 42% increase from October's figures, But for many Bitcoiners, this isn't enough. No shit, it's not enough. We're just kind of tired of waiting around for the rest of the world to figure out that all fiat basically blows chunks, right? So anyway, uh, let's make sure that I didn't just screw something up there. Hold on. Hold on. Yeah, okay. It looks like I'm good. I was just messing around with my uh, recording software and... Almost jacked everything up. PayPal-backed identity platform is acquired by Nevada's Blockchains LLC. I wish they would have spelled that with a Z. That would be like lots of fun, right? An identity management provider hacked or hacked, backed by PayPal, Foxconn, and others, has been acquired by Nevada-based holding company Blockchains LLC. Let's let's pause. Let's take a breath here for a sec. Ian Allison is going to tell us about this from Coindesk, but identity management provider that is backed by PayPal and Foxconn, Foxconn, okay, what does Foxconn do? It basically makes all mobile devices in the world. Where is it located? China. What did Foxconn have to do? Well, they had to put suicide nets outside the entire building because their employees started jumping out of windows to try to kill themselves. That had been going on for apparently a, a long enough that a few years, a couple of years back at least, probably more like five, they had to actually put suicide nets around the building so that their workers couldn't even escape that way. They, could, they weren't even going to allow their workers to escape through uh, auto-initiated death. I mean, I don't like suicide either. I don't think anybody should be doing it. But holy crap, you can't even kill yourself. That's how bad this place is. And they're the ones that are helping to back the identity management provider? (laughs) Okay. Cambridge blockchain principals Matthew Commons, Alex Oberhauser, and Muthu Arugam and the firm's software developers will join blockchain's digital identity team with complete integration targeted for the beginning of 2021, the financial terms of the deal were not made public. The acquisition announced on Tuesday is all geared towards the release of an unhosted wallet around April April of next year, said Blockchain Executive Vice President Lee Weiss. Quote, we re- we reached out to Cambridge and had discussions with them, and it was clear that we shared a common ethos, said, said Weiss. We ended up making a deal and the transaction closed last week, and we're thrilled that they've already started with us right after Thanksgiving. Cambridge's expertise in areas like biometrically secure credentialing and document pro- provenance will all feed into the wide-ranging plans of Blockchains, LLC, the owner of some 67,000 acres of land in Nevada with designs on a smart city development of sorts. Oh, God. oh This one hurts to read. This is awful. In June of last year, Blockchains acquired Ethereum startup Slocket, Oh, holy shit, really? Oh, let's see if they say anything about the DAO. Whose founders, Christoph and Simon Gents became blockchain's vice president of technology and director of blockchain development, respectively. Oh, my God. A spokesperson for PayPal Ventures declined to comment on the Cambridge blockchain acquisition. Guys, this is terrible. This is freaking awful. Okay, Slockit, that's S-L-O-C-K dot I-T. Now, why is that significant? If you've ever heard of the Ethereum DAO hack, DAO spelled D-A-O for Decentralized Autonomous Organization, then you will know that that's what caused the split between Ethereum as you know it today and what we know as Ethereum Classic. A huge hack happened, and Vitalik and all his friends got on a phone call and said, you know what? We're going to roll this back, which means automatically from that day forward, we knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that Ethereum was 100% not only hackable, but also not immutable. That's why Bitcoin maximalists go up against Ethereum because I think this was 2015 when this happened. That's why we don't trust any of these people, because if any of their friends get hacked, like the Dow hack, then they can just roll back the chain. So why is this interesting for Slock? Well, Slock was the hack. It was Slocket that was going to, as a company, was going to have some kind of like smart contract or use a smart contract to unlock doors, uh, to have a lock that was somehow or another Internet of Things enabled and that that lock would only open if, I don't know, somehow or another completed a smart contract, I guess, to, you know, pay them money so that I could unlock the door. Good idea, but you didn't have to do it on Ethereum. And it really proved it because what happened was the... I can't remember how much money was in there. I was like, I want to say $60 million was raised by the Ethereum community for Slockit so that they could develop the tech and go to market with it. And like a few days later... All sixty million dollars is just poof gone. All right. So what happened is that they were like, "Oh my God, we'll just roll it back," which means that Ethereum blockchain is not immutable. Okay. That means if they can roll back the bad, they can also roll back the good. So when Ethereum picks, you know, Vitalik picks up the phone and it's the Chinese government, and they say, "Hey, this guy that we don't like made this transaction. Once you roll back the chain, he can do it." Okay. That's when when you ask yourself questions as to why we don't like Ethereum, this is why, and a whole lot more. There's been a whole lot of hacks, a whole lot of sh- chicanery, a whole lot of bullshit. But essentially, it comes down to Slocket and the Dow, and what happened at the, on on those uh, during that particular week. Okay, so now the guys that created Slocket are going to be what? What did they say? Uh, let's see, Kristoff... The founders Christoph and Simon Jentz, J-E-N-T-Z-S-C-H, have become blockchain's vice president of tech and the director of blockchain development. The guys from Slocket that the Dow hack was around are now part of this PayPal and Foxconn-backed identity management provider. If this doesn't scare the, or not, it, it shouldn't scare the piss out of you, But if you have anything at all to do with PayPal, with Bitcoin, don't. I don't care that PayPal opened up, you know, Bitcoin to however many hundreds of millions or a billion people. I don't give a shit because that billion people are now in danger of having their identity basically stolen from them and used for nefarious purposes because all of these people are terrible people. Do not buy Bitcoin or anything else for that matter from PayPal. Okay go somewhere else because PayPal is going to be able to leverage this identity bullshit and they are going to leverage it on their bitcoin and cryptocurrency portions of their PayPal wallet. Don't do it. Don't don't even breathe around PayPal. Go to River Financial or go to Cash App even though they're getting to be, kind of piss me off a little bit or go to one of my favorites Swan Bitcoin. Swan Bitcoin and River Financial right now are actually my favorite places to do business because they are the most aligned with the ethics of the Bitcoin community. Cash App is—I don't know, man. I don't know where Cash App is going. I, I hope they. I just hope they don't go to the dark side. But we'll 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 have to see. That's going to do it for the morning roundup. All right, you've been waiting for it. I've been waiting for it. I actually have a daily train wrecked. And thank you, Raul Powell, for providing me that daily train wrecked. It uh, says, okay, last bomb. I have a sell order in tomorrow to sell all my gold and to scale in to buy BTC and Ethereum, 80, 80% BTC to 20% Ethereum. I don't own anything else except some bond calls and some cash, 98% of my liquid net worth. See, you can't categorize me except irresponsibly long. Good night, all. Okay. Why is that a train wreck? Well, so okay, yeah. That's I, you know, he he sold all his gold. He he knows what he knows what's going on. Um, um, the the problem becomes when people started, you know, saying, "Oh my God, you're buying Ethereum!" Like I I just told you about this shit. You know, the the whole Dow thing. That's why we don't trust it. And here we have Ralph Paul. Who's like, yeah, yeah 20% Ethereum. Why, why would you even do so? And people, you know, especially Bitcoin maxis were hammering on Raul. I, I was part of that crew too. I'm like going, dude, why don't you just buy freaking Ripple? Well, apparently he's also warming up to Ripple, but I'm not even going to get into that. So everybody was like, you know, you, you know better. You, you, you know, it's not like you're not, you know, I don't know, not, can't figure out risk. And then we figured it all out let's see and i want to make i want to make sure of something here hold on for just one second i want to make sure of when, when he did this okay yeah that was the 29th yeah and then here the reason i wanted to find out is that that was actually a couple of days before this one from Raul Paul as well okay um he says and let's see when see if I can find out exactly what to know and did I not do that now I didn't I didn't take the timestamp but uh I know it was like a couple of days after he was getting hammered he says this is an incredible documentary on ETH and then he links to his real vision twitter account that says we've just premiered our 95 minute documentary on ethereum it's an essential watch if you want to learn about ethereum uses today what ETH 2.0 is and what its future might hold. Oh, and it's included in our free crypto membership. It's no wonder Raul Paul bought Ethereum. So he would look like he had some street cred with the Ethereans when he released this bullshit documentary. The man is no better than a carnival yapper. Seriously, I've been to carnivals and state fairs and all manner of like that weird shit where carnies are screaming at you and like, you know, I don't know, like, you know, Carney Jim over there who's half drunk trying to figure out a way to put a four-year-old on a goddamn horse without killing her, you know? I'm, I'm, I'm serious, man. I mean, carnies have more ethics than this guy. He literally jumped into Ethereum so it, because he was planning on releasing this documentary. Look. I know I suck at marketing. I get that. I need to be a better marketer. I would really like this podcast to go somewhere. I would like it to pay bills. But my God Almighty, I'm not going to say shit like, I'm going 80, 20 into Bitcoin and Ethereum and then start talking about Ethereum so that I can promote the show. I can't do it. I I just can't. It just makes me sick to think about. And then I look at somebody like Rawl and wonder how he got all his money. And now I know. He's a lying sack of shit. And uh, I mean, why is he lying? Well, because he, he just, he bought ETH just so that he could promote this show. That's what I believe. And, you know, I get to say that shit. Anyway, there's your smoldering pile right there. Terrible Joke Corner brought to you by Dad Says Jokes. He says, we all know that Albert Einstein was a genius, but very few people know his brother Frank was a monster. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, that's a bad joke for two reasons. Frankenstein was not the name of the monster. That was the name of the Frank. Dr Frankenstein who created there was Dr you know what if just you know over christmas do yourself a huge favor read the original frankenstein from mary shelley and be amazed honestly and if you if for whatever reason you want to know how this genre began the genre of quote unquote horror uh you might want to take a look at the gothic novel i'm just saying this is kind of an aside i don't normally talk about this stuff but the gothic novel, it was instantiated by a guy named Horace Walpole, W-A-L-P-O-L-E. Horace wrote a book called The, the Castle of Otranto, and it basically had uh, created all the hallmarks for a gothic novel. Now, most people look at Dracula and say, oh, it's an old horror flick. Now, it's not. It's honestly what Fra- uh, Frankenstein uh, sorry yeah Frankenstein what Frankenstein actually is is a gothic novel it's not a rewrite of Horace Walpole but there's enough in it that is a reflection of the gothic novel okay so if you want to figure out where horror really came from you know it's uh was it? Lovecraft is one of the guys but he was sort of the hack writer at the day um Lovecraft, I guess, is good, but I've never read it, but everybody seems to love it. But dude, Horace Walpole, get a hold of The Castle of Otranto, Dracula from Bram Cohen, uh, Bram Cohen, Bram, Bram Stoker, and Shelley, uh, Mary Shelley's uh, Frankenstein. Read all three of those books over the Christmas break and uh, be amazed. Uh, I'm serious. It, you will not be wasting your time. So let's see what to say here. If you want to support this show, uh, cause I, I, I mean, I, I know I promote people on this show, uh, basically kind of like give them, you know, ads every once in a while, like for, sh- uh, my friends over at Play Shaumery, um, and all that kind of stuff, you know, they don't pay me and that's fine. I, I you know, that, I mean, I, I, like their product. That's why I talk about it, but I don't want to, you know, be in a situation where I, you know, have to go out and like, you know, beg Kraken or something, which they'll never support me, but I'm let's say that they would. I don't want to beg them for money cuz I don't I don't trade. How you know on how I mean if I'm not an active trader I can't very well get a trading you know a company that is a trading company to sponsor me. I w- that would not be right. But there's a new way to do this. There's a new way to support the show without you know going to my website which I don't have without not yet without you know do like you know using bottle pay which isn't reactivated yet although it's coming soon. If you were a fan of bottle pay Bottle pay is coming back, y'all, and I was a huge fan. And without using Tip and Me, without all that stuff, if you just go, if you do this one-time thing, go to Sphinx chat, okay? Sphinx.chat, it's at Sphinx underscore chat on Twitter, and uh, get the app on their phone. It's in test flight mode, okay? So it's beta, so you have to, if you're like Apple, you have to have it under test flight. I don't know about Google or uh, uh, Android stuff, so I don't know anything about that. But if you get the chat, the uh, Sphinx chat, you can stream this podcast and pay me one to 100 Satoshis per minute as you see fit without doing anything. Honestly, what you do is you get the chat app or the, the Sphinx chat on your phone. And then while the best way to do it is uh, to go to sphinx.chat and rent a lightning node. It cost me 79 cents to rent a or 4,000 Satoshis at the time to rent a node, a lightning node for a month. And I was able to send, you know, load that lightning node through LN strike uh, because I had some money on it. So I just sent it, you know, just created an invoice and loaded it up with like, you know, 10,000 Satoshis or something like that. That was like super easy to do, man. And then I uh, put my invite code that I got from the, my node rental purchase or whatever from chat dot or sphinx dot chat and put it into um, my the chat, the sphinx dot chat app on my phone. And it automatically linked the chat, the sphinx.chat sphinx dot chat or the sphinx app on my phone to my lightning node. OK, so now my phone and the sphinx chat is actually linked. So then, on my phone, I go to tribes.sphinx.chat, and all of a sudden, all the people that have tribes, which is sort of what they're called, um, come up. And I have a tribe. It's Bitcoin and. And if you if you spend some satoshis to join that tribe, then uh, we can chat. And there's like you know if 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 like I think I've got mine set at 10 satoshis per message. So if you send me a message in my tribe. It'll cost you 10 Satoshis. And then there's a $50 stake for 12 hours, which means that for every message that you send, you're going to send me 60 Satoshis. And in 12 hours, you're going to get 50 Satoshis back. That's just for chatting. But also the chat or the Sphinx guys hooked up with Adam Curry's podcast 2.0 and the podcast index. And they've sort of smashed together and come up with this thing where Adam Curry's podcast index is populating Sphinx chat and as a since I gave my RSS feed in my profile for my Sphinx tribe then my this podcast comes up in the Sphinx chat and you can set it you like if you know you'll figure it out it takes a, a little bit of you know maneuvering by yourself on the on the app but there's a bar that you can set when you're in my tribe That says, I want to listen to, you know, to these episodes or to, you know, episodes of uh, Bitcoin and, but I only want to do it at at three Satoshis per minute or zero Satoshis per minute, if you want, or a hundred Satoshis per minute or anywhere in between, because it's a slider. Okay. Um, And if you, so if you want to support the show and you don't want to do any of the rest of the shit, you can actually support the show while you listen. It's called a value for value transfer It's bi-directional. It's real-time. You send me sats every single minute, and during that minute, my podcast is streaming. If you pause the podcast for any particular reason, um, ooh, good Lord, we're having a hell of a sell-off right now. We're at $18,403. What the hell hell happened, man? Well, we're not going to worry about it because these things happen, and these things are expected. But anyway, if you want to support the show, stream me some sats. Go join my tribe, Bitcoin And, on Sphinx Chat, and I'll, well, hell, I'll see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin And, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.